0: Anita E. Mance, the Life of Gem live video podcast. And I have a special guest here tonight, writer Katie Porter, who just came out with this epic collection called Novel. It's a chapbook just published by Bamboo Dart Press. So this is season two, episode 10. Okay. And I'm going to read Katie's bio and then I'm going to bring her in. So let me pull up her bio because she just sent me a new one. Katie Porter is the author of 10. 10. Poetry collections, including The Body at a Loss and the most recently published novel, which is actually poetry, but it's called Novel. And that's by Bamboo Dart. Her poems have most recently been published in Terrain, Verse Daily, Rattle, Table Feast, Hags on Fire, and Writing in a Woman's Voice. Katie has lived 33 of her 51, yes, she's dating herself, it was her birthday yesterday, years in the IE. She credits the California Poets in the Schools program with igniting her love for poetry. Through that program, she learned the dying art of paste up, the power of Xerox, and a new word, chapbook. At the age of 37, with two kids in grade school, she went back to school and earned an MFA from Antioch University in Los Angeles. She still lives in Southern California in the Inland Empire, where she runs Homelian, a journal of poetry, and directs the Inlandia Institute, a literary nonprofit. Welcome, Katie! Yeah. Hey <laughs> Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank, <laughs> Thank you for being so here. Fun. Katie and I go way back. Uh, we work together in an Inlandia. I'm on the board. She's our illustrious director she literally runs this organization the premier literary organization in the inland empire so people also donate to inlandia a little shout out to them so katie and i have known each other for years she's an old friend well a young old friend and we have so much in common we're both gen xers we're all girls and it's such an honor to have you on katie and promote your book number 10 all right. Thank you. I've got my twin over here. <laughs> Twinsies, quack, quack. You're a poetry book. It's such, I mean, it's exactly what I needed in these times. It's such a delightful read. So I would love for you to just start out reading us a two or three poems before we start the interview so my readers can hear your voice. So I'm going to put the camera on you. I'm going to mute me so I can shut up.
1: All right, then. Hi, hi, everybody. Um, I will read you three kind of different poems from the book. Um, I'm going to start with one um, that sort of relates back to my very first chapbook publication back in 2008. It was a poem um, related to fruit and fruit related terminology. And so I recently kind of resurrected that as a theme, and uh, there is something called an apple polisher. Um, It's a term, uh, but as you'll hear in the poem, um, I tend to deviate from what the actual definitions of these words are. So this poem is called The Apple Polisher. She sells her apples to the highest bidder at market. She comes home with pennies in her pocket. Freedom. The market corners her apples the way a page comes to a point at its corners, sharp and full of unearned wisdom. Someone somewhere is always polishing the apples for sale and they get shinier by the moment. Sometimes she throws the apple of discord into the crowd and watches them fight over the fruits of her labor. Fruits are always born of women, she knows. She carries them in a satchel. She knows she carries uh, them, she clutches them. Eve knew, even as she drew down her first bite, that all children eventually perish. Drosophila hover over the windfall. Every fleshy fruit is derived of an ovary with child. Child. She adores the process, not the product. Her apples cry at being sent to market, but she can only bear so much. They are too sweet. There are those who would not partake of her apples if they knew where they came from. They too were her apples once, now seeded into tree. Her calyx aches with every bite of their bitter butter. So that's poem number one. Um, I think I'll read you. Oh, how about this one? Um, The Proper Care and Housing of Stories. I keep mine in a paddock. When I take them out, I hold them close to the body like warm laundry. They squirm and wriggle and try to bake break free. The stories sometimes push through the fence, the one that I use to contain them. Other times I deliberately leave open the gate a smidge. They think they're escaping, but there is always the horizon to rein them in. Sometimes they take them to the beach, scoop out a trough just big enough to hold them, about the size of a bathtub so they can stretch and I gently set them in. I draw pictograms in the sand and together we watch the waves obscure them. The stories like that. It reminds them. Sometimes I take my stories to the woods to abandon them because they are a bother, these stories, but they always find their way back. And when they arrive, I greet them as though I never meant for them to leave. They are so predictable, my stories. I always know where they're going until they emerge from my neighbor's garage where a dismantled Mustang has been replaced by a horse made up of sugar cubes. All right, so, um, Ollie will do just one more, um, Let's see, how about, this is short. um, And it was actually written as a prose poem initially or more like flash fiction, a very, very, very short story. Um, But it's been reworked a little bit uh, for this book. As Margaret napped through the apocalypse, on the apartment couch near the window, a stampede of saddle shoes outside trampled the marigolds, as business persons ran from offices eating footlong hot dogs, and slurping slushies being chased by giant staplers. An umbrella deep as a cloud is throwing shade. So thank you, Juanita.
0: <laughs> wow, I love that you read those pieces because. They really do show the whimsy of your work, and there's an undercurrent of seriousness and feminism that is in all your work, and especially in this book, but that um, end line, it's very surreal, an umbrella deep as a cloud is throwing shade, and then the line before being chased by giant staplers, and then the other poem you read about where you personify your stories, right? yeah. And yeah, that's what I love about you the most is that you are such a crafts person with your work. It's like, you know, there's people that build um, shelves and, you know, create beautiful furniture or dresses, artists. You create these beautiful images through your poetry. So thank you. Well, thank you, Juanita. That is high praise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've always admired poets so much. And I know you write essays and nonfiction as well. But I think that your poetic voice is so strong. Well,
1: it's, um,
0: you know, I've been writing
1: for a long time. And some of my poems do tend to be very rooted in the real. And that can get very intense. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to break free of that and just... Kind of subvert that and write about things, but in a more oblique way that, um, I don't know, pokes fun at reality or allows me to say things um, that are playful. But like you say, there is an undercurrent um, of seriousness or, um, oh, I don't know, whatever's on my mind finds its way into the poem one way or another.
0: Yeah, there's definitely the per- personal and the political kind of merge, but there's that you make it lighthearted in this book, which is what I love. And some of your earlier work is a l- more a little more dark. Um, you naming a poetry book novel is what I <laughs> is the first thing that struck me. It's so quirky and funny, just like your collection. Um, but where did you come up with the namesake poem? From where you got the title, and do you want to read that piece? Sure. So, and it's the last poem in the book, just so
1: everyone knows. Well, so a little bit of backstory. Um, one of the so I've been writing and been a part of a writer's group, which I highly recommend since I was newly pregnant with my oldest son, who's now twenty two, going on twenty three. And one of the things um, that I did was I um, it's it's been the thing that has saved me over the years. It's been my education meeting with these women once a month. It used to be in person. The group has rotated, but um, so novel came about more recently. And I'd say, you know, within the past two or three years um, on a Sunday, probably an hour or two before our writers group was supposed to meet because I didn't have a poem to share. (laughs) And so I just sat down and I wrote this poem And it was very stream of consciousness and I just let it take me wherever it was going to go. And it took me in some strange places Mm -hmm. and it was fun. And I called it novel and that I didn't, um, think about it as the title poem for the book until I had already assembled the manuscript and turned it into bamboo dart. And it had Mm -hmm. a different title and then I realized, the old Wait. Title? <laughs> um because the dead cannot tie their shoes, mm. and that's the title of another poem, but I felt like that was too dark, and it didn't yeah. really not all the poems are about death, although there's like a good percentage of them that are yeah um in a in a silly way, but I didn't Lazarus I didn't,
0: being one of them, which is a David Bowie uh, song too. Oh, cool. Well, there's a backstory to that one, too. Um, So
1: I just decided that um, I wanted a title that encompassed, you know, kind of the overarching um, project that was this book, which was to flip things on their head um, Mm -hmm. or turn things inside out, like folding a man like you'd fold a pair of slacks. (laughs) <laughs> an iron and starch. Um, if only we could, right? <laughs> right. And then you, you know, folding them down until he's pocket-sized <laughs> in pocket size. Um, so I decided novel was a better title because a lot of the poems are novel in the sense that they are a new take on something old or something different.
0: Do you want to read a portion of that piece? I mean, I know it's a little longer of a piece. It's it's almost like written in a prose form. Um, If you want to read a portion of it, I'll put the camera on you. I want people to hear this. And like I said, this is the last poem in the book. It's the namesake poem, and it's just so well done. So I'm going to put the camera on you.
1: All right. Well, okay. So I'm just going to read you. So it's a really, if you can see it, it's a pretty thick, well, which way? This way. Poem. Um, and it extends onto the next page. So I'm just going to read you like the first quarter of it. And then if you want to read the rest, you can either buy the book or find it on Hags on Fire, which is um, a journal for women over 50 postmenopausal women. Um, that is a, a word that I think we should all get comfortable with saying menopause, postmenopausal. OK, um, this is called novel. In the opening scene, the heroine, me, is hanging by her thumbs from a bridge. No, it is not meant to be comedic. My thumbs do not find this funny at all. As the camera pans wide, you can see that the heroine, me, is dangling over a serene river. Yes, I know that rivers aren't serene, Okay. In this case, it is. Please bear with me. The river is gently flowing at her feet, and her feet are almost touching down. Yes, I know that's a very low bridge. Anyway, she lets go, and now she's in the river. All right. So that gives you a flavor for where I'm going with that.
0: Um, yeah, why do you and I love that bridge. Okay. I love the narrator in this piece, how it's a she. And the thing that struck me most, and this isn't one of the questions I gave you beforehand, but it's the femininity in your work. And it's Mm -hmm. not like this um, cute, darling femininity, even though it is in a little bit but it's very subversive. Like you said before, it's very much about femaleness and about femininity and about politics. Really. You have a poem that's called disarming Sue. Mm -hmm. And it really made sense to me with the recent Roe v. Wade decision and the political upheaval that we're going through where we're taking away women's rights, right? We're almost taking Mm -hmm. away our body parts in a way or our control, our autonomy over that. Um, And it's, that's, um, if you could just read that piece really quick, I'm going to keep the camera on both of us, but I think I want people to hear that piece because I think it's really important for today um, that people realize how much of a tool poetry can be. It
1: it absolutely can be. So, and Hegg's on Fire, as I'm searching for Disarming Sue, um, Hegg's on Fire, the issue that that poem appears in the theme for it was roles Mm. and it was, so I wrote when I submitted that poem, I was thinking about women's roles in society and how there is a lot of pressure on women, even, you know, especially those of us who both, you know, work full time Mm -hmm. and also have kids or other responsibilities. And, you know, maybe we also have a partner, but there's um, a lot of expectations on us. That is are not necessarily equally distributed among uh, the people in our in our household or our living unit. Um,
0: but this this poem disarming Sue, yeah, um. Yeah, that emotional labor that we take on, all this labor that women do for free, whether it's organizational, at home, and at work, you know, I really do believe, um, at least in my law career, women make the best calendar attorneys, because they're really good at multitasking. But on the other hand, sometimes female attorneys get pigeonholed into social worker roles. And it's like, shouldn't we all be good at that stuff? You know, Mm -hmm. so it's also about redefining um, and not taking advantage of women in a lot of ways. And you're you know, we give away a lot of free labor is the other problem. But anyways, I want you to read this piece. So, okay.
1: So, um, disarming Sue. Isn't she charming? Each word is loaded with intent. See Sue, she is dangerous. Her phrases drip, weaponized. To disarm her, First, ask her to dance. Then, twist her arms until you hear a snap. Her arms will slip right out of her sleeves. Armless, she can take her place in line with the other girls, waiting to be fitted with a safer, more compliant pair. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And little Ruth is going to... All right. Hello, Ruth. Give me the little thumbs up there. I mean, that's what it's about, right? It's about that idea of compliance Mm -hmm. and taking away something from women. Like, how do you do that? And it's happened. I mean, it's frustrating. But how do you feel about that as a poet, about where we are um, as far as women's rights right now, where it's state by state? How can we say that, you know, these laws are relative by state? It's shocking, really. Yeah,
1: well, I am obviously pro-choice um, and I am, I was appalled at the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but not, uh, not terribly surprised given the makeup of the Supreme Court right now. Um, I think that as poets, we have a voice and we should use it. And I think especially as women poets, yeah. we need to make ourselves heard.
0: So thank you for that. I think that's really yeah. important. Um, then the very next poem after disarming Sue, and um, I know we're giving away a lot of the uh, kitchen here as far as your work, <laughs> but I, I really do think that, you know, these are poems you can read over and over, you know, and hearing you read them, you have a poem right after that called self portrait in the kitchen as the wife without hands. What, what does that stem from? where did you get the impetus for that poem? Um, you know, I, so that poem
1: actually was published first in a different chapbook that I wrote called the body like bread, which were, I don't know. They're all food poems or kitchen poems. Um, a lot of them were written on my phone, which keeps going off on me, of course. <laughs> um, and oh okay shoot yeah people are having trouble getting into uh, one of the workshops so there goes my yeah. workshop going on um <laughs> so hopefully janine can help them
0: um, it never ends okay. you on- are on
1: call all i the am time. okay so trying to put my brain poet bat, hat back on take my work hat off for a minute um so sorry, Francis, if you're out there, <laughs> <laughs> the um, most of those poems in that chapbook were written on my phone, standing either in the kitchen, waiting for food to cook or, you know, waiting for something. Cause I've got kids, I've got a husband and I have to, had to, at that time, I was just trying to find time to write wherever I could. Yeah. We do that. And so. Yeah. This poem was written in that You work. and I
0: are like the the textbook examples of writing yeah. where we can and when we can, right? Yep. Yep. Although, you know,
1: I've had inspiration from other people like Susan Strait, who mm-hmm. I've heard um, talk, give talks and talk about how she wrote, you know, at soccer games and, you know, waiting in the car for her kids to get out of school. Uh, but I don't write longhand. Otherwise, I'd never be able to read any of my poems yeah right um I type them otherwise they're illegible
0: and and there you know, is something different um I write all my blogs on my phone and you know I wrote a, a essay about like how you find time to do all these different things when you have a full-time job and I think part of it is like you said if you're cooking something and you're waiting for a timer to go off about five, 10 minutes. You can do a free ride in that time. And I really want to take a class with you where you put some of, where you, I, I know you don't teach, but I think you really yeah. should teach a class. I would love to take a poetry class with you. And I love how you have these thematic themes in your work. I, I, so many poets, um, I just interviewed, um, jose hernandez diaz a couple months ago and his work um reminds me of your work in the sense that it's very thematic and it's very structured and your work is very structured and everything goes together at no point did i read your collection and go oh this poem doesn't belong you know yeah
1: well putting together a book is an art in and of itself mm-hmm. it spent me a, spent a long time i spent a long time putting it together, rearranging things. It's like rearranging the furniture until you find the right (laughs) arrangement. Um, So yeah. And it, and writing on your phone is different from writing longhand is different Mm -hmm. from writing on your um, computer with when you can type and use the full keyboard. Um, And I think it brings something different out of you depending on your method of writing. Yeah.
0: And on that same note, um, we talked about how there's this theme of death and there's mm-hmm. also the theme of food, of forest, of foraging, decay, but also with that undercurrent of lightness um, and whimsy. How did you decide to put all these poems in this collection? And how did you find, cause we I titled this series, this episode, Uh, Finding your creative voice, because I think you're really a master at that, that there's a creativity here, but there's a consistency and there's a thread that runs through. And I think that's really important when you're reading a collection of poetry that the voice carries through. How do you do
1: that? Well, I write in a lot of different modes, like I mentioned earlier. And it's um, so the true story of how these came about is they were part of a larger manuscript that was basically everything in the kitchen sink. And I wanted to have more of a mixtape approach, like here Mm -hmm. are all the poems I've written over the past few years. And I sent those off to the publisher who published my book, Body a Loss. And uh, they said, "Um, nope, (laughs) this isn't working. Mm -hmm. And so when they sent it back to me, I looked at it and I realized, okay, there really are like, modes in here and I peeled them apart and I said okay now I've got these sort of whimsical poems and they're going to be one thing and then I've got these more serious like parenting family marriage poems and they're going to be something else and I I, lo- I, would love to teach a workshop I have taught lots of workshops over the years um, for all ages um, and I am, I'm leading a workshop right now on revising and submitting your work, which part of that process is deciding what poems would go into a manuscript. And I, I think that that's part of the fun part of putting a manuscript together, you see what you've got, and then if you find that there's some kind of cohesion there, but maybe you're missing um, uh, maybe there are a couple of holes in what would be sort of a narrative arc, an overarching, arching narrative. Then you can
0: write to that, and I have, I have done that. Um, and guess. that idea of the kitchen sink, I think that's really interesting because I had this book of poetry called that I called Categories, and I broke it up: mother, father, husband, um, myself, like different categories of family. And then I took a portion of that and put that, and I, it, I submitted it, nothing happened. And then I yeah. took a portion of it and put it in my memoir. But I had to really piece out only those poems that made sense with my memoir, that told a different part of the story of my, of my young adult memoir. And I think that, I think really being part of Inlandia and you put together books for a living for Inlandia, I mean, yeah. that must help, don't you think? I do. I do think so.
1: Um, I've read a lot of manuscripts over mm-hmm. the years. I've seen a lot of different strategies of arranging things, you know, and all different kinds of manuscripts. Um, but it it comes down to cohesion and it's also sort of like a kaleidoscope. You, yeah. you know, it's all the same view, but from different angles and, you don't want it to be totally fragmented and okay. hard to um, hard to make sense out of, because that's not a very good reader experience. You want the reader to want to continue to turn the page, and um, you also don't want to fall victim to, you know, all your weak poems, <laughs> letting them stay. You do need to know when to cut and when you know, when something isn't working, even if you love it, or even if you feel like it is, it is filling a a gap in there, you have to know, you know, it's, it's
0: got to go somewhere else, or it needs work. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, it's, it's tempting to not, um, you know, kill your darlings, for want of a better term, but you have to, you know, I, I really, I have a lot of poems that I would never publish. They're just, It's not that they're crap, but they're just not, you know, there's a certain level that a poem has to rise to, I think, to be publishable. That doesn't mean that you throw it away. You just keep it in your arsenal. Maybe you revise it later. How, Mm -hmm. so what is your favorite poem in the book out of all of these? And then if you want to talk a little bit about the form, um, this shortened form, how hard was that? Okay. Oh, favorite.
1: Um. Let me, I, you know, it's like telling me to pick my favorite child. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can. Yeah. But I, I suppose. Well, so I have a poem in here. I do. I mean, there are a lot of them that I love. Um, but, and there are some of them that, you know, I don't love as much maybe. Um, so you didn't hear that poems. But, um, but it's called "How to Teach a Cat to Type."
0: <laughs> Will you read that yeah. one?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that came about one day when I had—I have cats. I've got three cats <laughs> in the house, and you know they tend to—you leave the laptop open. You come back, you find cats on the keyboard and random characters on the screen. Um, and somebody's uh, Choya Needles, Rich Seuss, sent me a really funny book by David Chorlton um, that is uh, actually not by him, but it's by a poet who is a cat. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's related. So if you like poems by cats, <laughs> that's like the next stage up from this poem, which is just teaching the cat to type. So, how to teach a cat to type? One. Put cat nip on the keys and let said cat roll on the keys. Two. Stick with monosyllabic words at first. Three. But of course, one must start by teaching the cat to read. Four. Once she has mastered, Michelle de Montaigne, move on to Schrodinger. Five, when she rejects conventional notions of morality, be prepared to accept the facts as they evolve to suit her. Six, if she asks for a martini, up dry with a mouse, do not bring her a Gibson or a dirty, and by no means should you ever bring her anything but top shelf. Seven, Do not allow her to wallow in existential crisis. Instead, remind her that you long ago swapped kibble for squab and bring her another drink. Eight. When and or if she is ready to begin, be prepared to go back to the beginning and allow her to rewrite the instructions herself. Nine. If at that point she chooses not to, Remember free will and forget she was ever just a cat.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. I think that's my favorite too. It's, it really does like show um, just your voice. It's so funny.
1: Well, I, I, I think the older I get, the less worried I am about what I say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of drive my husband crazy with puns or, you know, making fun of things as I see them when we're out and about to the point where he, yeah. So that's the kind of sense of humor that I have. Mm-hmm. And yeah, teaching
0: a cat to type. I can see myself <laughs> literally trying to teach. a cat. To type. I've had many cats in my life. I'm a cat lover. And now I have dogs. But my cat Leopold, if there was ever a cat that could type, Leopold Bloom would have been that cat. All right, well,
1: especially the name
0: Leopold,, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Francis just said, uh Francis Barella, who was in my writing oh. group for years and who's an inlandian, um, I feel like I know that cat, uh-huh <laughs> oh yeah, it's a certain kind of cat. <laughs> it is a certain catty cat. It's like a human cat, you know, I always say that mm-hmm. there's human cats and dogs and there's dogs dogs and cats that are mm-hmm. just more animal but you know you there's these cats that are like little people and dogs yeah. like little people they are and they have personalities mm-hmm. and they
1: you know which is which and what they're going to do and what kind of trouble they're going to get into and you know i'm not going to anthropomorphize our cats it's but the they thing. are definitely um troublemakers, each in their own way. And how many
0: cats do you have? We have three. Okay. That's not too bad. Yeah. You're not officially a cat lady then. I think five is the number for being oh. a cat lady.
1: My youngest sister has seven. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing all right. Yes, Great.
0: you
1: we are. <laughs> so <laughs> we all love cats in my
0: family. Yeah. Um, so... You published this book with Mark Gibbons and Dennis Calici. Mm-hmm. And I love the cover, by the way, The Duck, um, of yeah. Bamboo Dart. What was, I know you published with a lot of different presses. And I, mm-hmm. I, we both published with Bamboo Dart. So I can say they are one of the best uh, small presses there is. What is the best part of a small press, in your opinion, and the worst?
1: Um, the best part is creative control. You have more input over the design elements and Mm -hmm. you work directly with the publisher or the editor um the larger the press the more layers of bureaucracy the and even with some smaller presses they have especially those that have been around for a long time they have their ways of doing things they're set in their ways Mm -hmm. um there's a famous phrase That, you know, if you've ever had a book designed in the poetry, um, poetry verse, a painting in a box, that's basically (laughs) one. So some presses have a format, a template where there's just, you know, title above, box, Mm. painting, author's name at the bottom. And that's every book they publish. Mm. And,
0: you know, you might have some say over what goes in that box. But that's about it. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's the best part of working with Mark and Dennis is how um, in tune they are with aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Like to each particular author that they published. And everyone go to Bamboo Dart and buy this book. It is a steal at $7.99. Eight bucks for a wonderful book of poetry that you'll read over and over um, I read mine in the bathtub sometimes, so you can tell it has a little bit of water stain, but, you know, okay. treat my books. I don't, I've never been able to treat books well, but they are well loved, but they, they fall in the bathtub occasionally. Mine so too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go to the library and my, a lot of my allowance would go to either late fees or uh, damage fees. Yeah,
1: I don't think, Yeah. As a kid, I didn't go to the library that often. Um, we actually, I don't know why we didn't. Hmm. During the summer, I did uh, summer reading programs with my grandmother, but I don't remember having late fees. She probably
0: paid them for me and just didn't tell me. Um, yeah, I think they've done away with them now. Um, but they, they, the late fees used to be. I mean, even though it was only quarter fifty cents a day back then, that was a lot of money. You know, you might have gotten a dollar a week for your allowance. You know. Yeah. Yep. So this is your 10th book. And I read a couple names of your books earlier. How do you stay motivated to creating book after book after such a prolific career, especially while holding down a full-time job, being a mother, a wife, director of the Landy Institute, which is more than a full-time job, I can tell everyone. Um, So anyways, but let me put these up really quick. Uh, Cindy Nessinger said, I bought two, one for a gift. Thank and then Victoria <laughs> Victoria Waddle's here too, who's an Inlandia professor. Uh she teaches a workshop and she's a librarian. I subscribe to Bamboo Dart and get all the good books.
1: Bamboo Dart. This this was not sponsored by Bamboo Dart. <laughs> okay.
0: So no uh
1: yeah. But we love Bamboo Dart. Um oh, yeah. in part because they're local mm-hmm. and we're local and they're homegrown, they're small. They take their author's um, input seriously.
0: And that is a rare thing. Um, yeah. But. And they're punk rock in the best way. Uh, and by that, I mean that it is not. They don't over labor this. Like these books come out between six months and a year. um they're short books. They they look like almost like an album cover, like a short 45. Um, and they just have this certain all and many of the writers are from the Inland Empire. And it's just amazing what Mark and Dennis have been able to do with the um with the partnership between Pelikinesis and Shrimper Records. It that every writer on this label, and I'll call it a label, definitely has a certain aesthetic. And it's not like everyone's the same. It's very um. Everyone's very different, but there's also, there's just a certain tone. I don't know what it is. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, for one, so
1: while I was, uh, while I'm complaining about the painting in a box aesthetic, um, there is some value in having a a similar format or a, a, um, you know, a similar look to all of the Mm -hmm. books. Because, you know, I started seeing these by people at events. Yours was one of the first that I had seen. And when you see them all together, you go, oh, my gosh, they're so cute. I want them all. It's Mm -hmm. like Happy Meal toys or, (laughs) you know, Hot Wheels. You want to collect them all. And that's why they've got this subscription package. And, you know, it's like I want to get in on that. So, you know, here I am. And all of them have this spine. With bamboo, but different colors. And then they've got this block where you can put your art, whatever that art is. But Dennis is an artist.
0: Yeah. So he does. Yeah, you can see the consistency in the aesthetic. Yeah. You're right. I never really thought about that, but you're right. They all have that certain border and. They do. And it's
1: they, so they are very cute, but they do allow for a lot of flexibility in what you put on that cover. Um, Dennis, will often draw the cover art, but sometimes you use, they use their own art. Like Cindy Rennie, she's a fiber artist. And I know she used some of her um, fabric uh, art as her cover photographs of that. So again, it's about what the vision, what the
0: author's vision is. Yeah. And I know that uh, Stephanie Barbie Hammers just came out. I think I have it here in a box. Uh, city slickers you know and it has like a cover of a a city on it and so yeah it's 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 consistent but everything's very eclectic too and that's what I mean Mm -hmm. by punk rock like it's just very just creative very creative and
1: but I love chapbooks I think um -hmm. I I don't know how long we go but I know you asked me um the question about how do I stay motivated but I'm, I'm writing all the time. I'm like, it's my release. It's I've almost constantly got lines going through my head and it's a matter of, am I going to stop to write them down or am I going to let them flow past me like the river and, you know, just enjoy them for that brief second that they're there and then they're gone. But it's a, it's just a function of who I am. And so, you know, I publish when I can you know throw it out there to the world and if the world wants it great and if not
0: then it lives on my laptop that's so interesting and you're right about the chat book form I you know I wasn't a poet um when I put out uh, my first book I I was too insecure to call myself a poet I considered myself a memoirist and an essayist um were my two forms that I really felt comfortable in but I think there's something about that poetry chat book and messing. And the other thing bamboo dart does, and they're a master of, and they're one of the first people to, not the first, but one of the first people to really put collections together, a number of this books that play with the idea of a chat book and what a chat book can be, you mm-hmm. know, and whether it has to, you know, poetry, memoir, essay, uh, true stories. I mean, it's all music memoir. Uh, Peter churches wrote a music memoir, um, and I, I love what you said earlier about the mixtape, you know, that these you, your book kind of is very musical in a way. I, I felt the music of it. Um, is music an influence on you in your work? Um, yes, it is. Um, I'm not sure if there are that
1: many. So music as in internal music, mm-hmm. as in the rhythm of the line and the way the words sound. Yes, for sure. And in other books, maybe not in this one, um, I do have a lot of musical references, although you'll find, you'll find musical references here and there. Um, you know, I just, whatever is in my head gets woven into the poem. I'm trying to see if I have an example, but I can't think of one right out of the door. Um, but yes. Um, I listen to music all the time. I have musical kids. Um, I was, you know, I sang all growing up all through high school from, you know, elementary school through, you know, senior year and then actually, and beyond. So music has been a part of my life and music is a part of our household.
0: So it definitely finds its way in. Yeah, I can hear it in your in the musicality of your poetry, not that the theme is music, but there is like this tinkle to your work where um, it's almost like wind chimes, where I can just hear the musicality, especially when you read it aloud. And I love hearing work aloud. I always have. Um, I love going to readings. I love hearing people read. And I know not everyone's comfortable with reading. It's definitely an acquired skill. But I think it's so important that readers get together and create that community. And speaking of community really quick, we have to plug this. We're going to end in about 10, 15 minutes, but you're having a book party. Is that right? This Saturday, do you want to promote that really quick? Tell people where to find it? Sure. Um, So
1: it is going to be at back to the grind and Riverside. Riverside. Coffee house in Riverside. Yep. Uh, Hi Darren. If you're watching um darren is the proprietor and he is a wonderful guy and he's letting us they have a very cool basement area that has a stage and tables and chairs and it's a great space for a reading um i've been very covid friendly though i i want people to wear masks so please wear your mask if you if you come especially right now given um you know, the current state, but there will be snacks and goodies and there will be um, it will be participatory. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what that is, but just be prepared and do um, if you want to be there, there is an Eventbrite page for it. Let
0: me see if uh... and uh, just so everyone knows Back to the Grind is on University Avenue It's right there downtown. You can exit Mission Inn, and uh, it's right by the Mission Inn, and um, it's at 1 p.m. Is that right, Katie? It is, and I was asking people to RSVP so that I have a
1: pretty good head count um, in part so that I can figure out how many snacks to buy. That's like – so let me see if I can put the link in the chat, if there is a chat, but – yeah. Or If not, you know, write to Juanita and I will send you a link. Um, Do you see yeah, the comments okay. over there? Um, yeah. There see. we go. See. Oh, that says private. Let's try try it again. Can you see it, guys out there? Somebody give me a heads up if you were able to see it. I don't see it yet. Let me see. You don't. Well, it says it's under private chat. Huh. Chat with everyone in the studio. There you go. Uh, well. All right. I don't know if it's out there or not, but if it's not... We'll put it on my
0: um, Life of Gem Facebook page after we get off of this. Katie will send it to me. I'll put the link on my page. Please RSVP to her book party. Um, they're yeah. going to be celebrating novel. There's some yeah. kind of secret society of participation that she's going to put people <laughs> on the spot. Rubber duckies. <laughs> they speak. You can get one. Just show up. Rubber duckies. Oh. Yeah. And I'll be there. Katie will... Katie's going to be reading, I'm assuming there's um, there's a one drink minimum Buy a cup of coffee. There'll be some snacks there. Um, So we have about 10 more minutes. So I have a couple more questions. Um, We have a lot of people who are watching who are trying to publish their first book (laughs) or their second book. What is your best advice for someone who wants to publish? Do you think contests are the way to go? Do you think that getting an agent is the way to go? No, not in my opinion, but that's my opinion. Um, What do you think is the best route to publication? Like they have a manuscript in hand, whether it's poetry, memoir, essays, short stories, whatever it is, fiction, what do they do with it? Like, where do you, because, you know, no one teaches you this. No, no one. And there's no one way to do it either. And that's true. And I think
1: I, it's a qualified, you know, it depends if mm-hmm. it's poetry, there are tons of publishers out there. Everybody from indie presses. I love, if you are women identifying, um, look up dancing girl press run by Christy Bowen. She's a one woman show and she publishes beautiful chapbooks and um, And she does it all. But they don't have ISBNs, Mm -hmm. but they
0: are sold through her shop. And I know, you know, all the people. Just for people who don't know, what does it mean to have an ISBN or not have one?
1: So an ISBN is just a number that a book can be looked up by. And yeah, you all know what a barcode is. And so it's the number that's on the barcode. And it's also usually on the copyright page of a book. And yes, it is good to have an ISBN. But if your audience is primarily local, if your audience is primarily, you're going to hand sell these books at readings, then it doesn't matter. Um, So that's one way is chat books. One way is, you know, indie presses, micro presses, presses where you're, aesthetic like whatever you're writing about if you are you know using dancing girl press as the example you write feminist poetry and you are women identifying then you um you know send something off to them um if you if your goal is to be the next you know poet laureate of the united states like ada limon who is awesome and you should all watch the slow down and no, she didn't pay me to say that. I've never met her in my life, but I binge listen to The Slowdown. Um, is that her podcast? It, it is a wonderful poetry podcast. She reads poems, one poem each time, but she always gives a beautiful intro that's like a mini essay. And it's five minutes. Take five mm. minutes out of your day to listen to it. And she's just a wonderful poet. Um, and she's done a lot of things kind of grassroots too, but she's submitted and, and been published by some larger poetry presses. I just my suggestion is be tenacious, send it out, but make sure that before you send it, you've proofread it. you've had your best writing buddy read it and give you some feedback and you've looked at all the poems, all together and workshop shop them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just workshops are great. Um, but also you need to have somebody else who's not just your workshop buddy buddies, because you don't want it to be torn down. You want somebody yeah. who understands your work, who understands your voice, who isn't going to try and tell you to erase your voice. You know, your mm. voice is what it is. And that's what
0: makes your work unique. Mm. But, um, that's so important, right? Because like you sometimes go to these workshops where you don't know anyone and people tear you apart and you take it personally, or you have a professor yeah. that tears you apart when you're young. And it's like that kind of degradation can is so harmful for the creative soul and the creative spark. And I think it's yeah. really important that everyone knows that whatever your voice is, that's your voice. and You got to just be yeah. yourself, right? Yep don't edit it out don't
1: Mm -hmm. you know throw away all the the crap advice that people give you Mm -hmm. and take what you want and throw away the rest if it's not poetry if it's you know something else read like if it's a novel read as many novels as you can understand the genre before you start throwing your work out there to be published know the field to the best of your ability and then um So, you know, you're not duplicating the wheel that what you have Mm -hmm. is indeed unique and original and worth um, somebody spending time with. Uh, And that your voice is distinctive. Um, Whether you have an agent or not, that, again, depends on what your goals are. Mm -hmm. Only the really big commercial presses. Do you need an agent to have access to? No, you're not going to get in the door anywhere um, that requires an agent without an agent.
0: Yeah, the big five, right? The big five presses or big four, whatever it is now. You do need an agent. But people spend years looking for an agent. And this whole, you know, I heard that agents weren't even responding during COVID for the most part. So a lot of people put energy into that and couldn't find an agent. But it's like, what is an agent really? It's just someone that's advocating for you. And and if you're gonna go small press, you don't need that. But I love what you had just and I think putting the time into whatever you're crafting, especially non poetry, um, memoir, uh, novel, short story collection, essay collection, I, it t- the, it takes time, right? This is not yeah. like a quick bake thing. Mm-mm. And it's a bake and
1: then let it rise, or you know, you know, knead it and then let it rise, mm-hmm. and then knead it and let it rise, and you just you revise it and stick it in a drawer and then pull it out and revise it some more and read it again. And you don't want to just throw it out into the world. Um, after a lot of people have that mistaken um, sense that, okay, I've got a draft of something. I just finished it. Hooray. I'm done. It's the end of November. I just finished my NaNoWriMo novel. I'm going to go get it published. Well, you're, you need to take that back and, and, look at it again two or three more times at least Mm -hmm. before it's going to be anywhere near publishable or anywhere near.
0: Yeah. And what else are you working on? So uh, are you working on a novel as well or a memoir? I think.
1: I am working on now this is way out of my wheelhouse, but I'm working on a nonfiction book about my grandfathers who were ceramicists, ceramists, they both were very active um, from, well, my great-grandfather from, like, 1920-something through 1934, about. And then his son, my mom's dad, from, you know, the mid-19, oh, late, late 1930s, I think, through 1952 when he died. Mm. 52 or 53. Now I have to look it up. I can't remember off the top, but they both died a very young death. Uh, My grandfather was 36, no 39. And my great grandfather was 49. Um, They were both at the top of their game in their field. And they were both very influential in the field of ceramics. And there's also a lot of family history and family lore. And I'm, trying to no nobody's ever written about them there are all these um collectors books that have these boilerplate bios okay. that don't really represent who they were like my great-grandfather was a fabian socialist he was a void he was a vocal atheist at a time wow. where that was not um common and there, there are some other family stories that I'm trying to figure out truth
0: versus fiction. I love um, that. And I may not. So, yeah. You know, There's ways to get around time. that, you know, with language. But are you writing in first person or third person?
1: Well, I think I've settled on first person because love it. I was originally thinking um, that it would be a straight nonfiction book. But I'm leaning more toward now writing it from my perspective of finding these things out because that's as much a part of the
0: story as the reason I'm searching for these answers. And Yeah. And I love that idea of playing with what's true, what's not, you know, Jeanette Walls uh, who wrote, who wrote the glass castle also wrote a book about her grandmother and her grandmother's voice. One of my favorite writers who wrote catfish and Mandala, Andrew Pham, wrote Eaves of Heaven in his father's voice about Vietnam. And I know you might write it from your perspective as the writer. And that's even more fascinating, right? Especially to writers.
1: The investigation,
0: right? Yeah, the investigation. Like,
1: my family has a lot of Marys in it. Mm. And in fact, my great-grandfather's father had two wives. And one of the stories is that um, they were... the. Wife number one, Mary and my uh, great, great grandfather were friends with another couple um, who had also wife's name was Mary and they spent time together. And at some point they swapped wives and traded wives and got divorces and married each other's spouses. And it was a big scandal. (laughs) And it's in like the newspapers of the time. But I don't know if it's true or not. Um, But does it matter? It still makes for a good story. I'll buy
0: it.
1: Yeah. And I, but I will put it out there that I don't know if it's true or not, but here's what I found out. And this is what it says. And, you know, you decide it's for the reader to decide, but this is, you know, who they were. And,
0: yeah. You know, and the ethics of that is just in the acknowledgement that maybe mm-hmm. we don't know. You know, when uh, I think my book took my longer book took so long, my memoir, because I really struggled with that issue, man. That is to me the hardest issue. You know, there's auto fiction yeah. now, which, you know, maybe my book is 1%, 5% auto fiction, but I really love memoir that acknowledges the. Yeah fallibilities and the frailties of memory and of remembering and of truth and what is what is the truth whose perspective are we writing from you know and as long as you do the the legwork um I think that that's where the ethics come in that you're doing that background on it you're doing the investigation and you're acknowledging it yeah yeah I, I have a fancy of a road trip up the coast and visiting all
1: the family places and taking my mom um yeah. Mom, if you're out there, that's uh,
0: in my, in my plans. Get a grant and you can pay for it, you know? And I tell all these writers out there, there's a lot of grants coming out right now for writers. And I think that as writers, we need to get paid, you know, and at some point it's about coin so that you have the freedom to do your work. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: But you know, there are challenges, I won't mm-hmm. go into them now, but, you know, I run a nonprofit. So leaving for three months to, to do some kind of thing, that's, I don't know. I envy people who can take sabbaticals. I yeah. don't have that. Um, it's between family and, and other obligations. It's the idea of just the dedicated time to go off, like to a writer's retreat, and just spend a whole week by yourself in an isolated place and just do nothing but write. And you don't, I mean, I, you don't take a shower, you eat, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing but fruit. And at the end of the week, you've got something.
0: Really. That's how I wrote most of my uh, memoirs at these writing retreats at Macondo and Bona, but I want to apply to hedge book hedgebrook this year and I think that applications go live in August so I would mm. urge all of our writers to yep. apply to these workshops that Katie's talking about take that week and really focus on your writing you can get a lot done in one week you I mean some of the best albums ever made were written in one day right and best songs ever song if people can write a great song in a day you can write a good portion of a book in a week if you really focus yeah and if you, you really like And if you have no interruptions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to sign off right now, but I just wanted to remind everyone that Katie's book party is this Saturday at back to the grind. You can find her books. um, And especially this book on bamboo dart, and you can search Katie Porter for her other books. Um, And if you, I'm going to come back to you really quick so people know where to find you. But tune in next month on August 10th to hear Nancy Laird Young. She wrote this wonderful memoir called Tea with Dad. And I'm really excited to have her on. Her dad just passed. So that's going to be a very special episode, a tribute to her father. We're going to talk about her book, Tea with Dad. And I'd I'd urge everyone to get it before the podcast. But Katie, where can people find you if they want to find your work? Do you have a website? How do people find you? I do have a website. It's really super simple. Just katieporter.com.
1: C-A-T-I-P-O-R-T-E-R dot C-O-M. And uh, it's out there and I'm all over social media. Um, I will say I haven't logged into LinkedIn in several months. (laughs) So don't find me there. Um, TikTok? Are you on TikTok yet? um, I am sort of I have two of my videos we didn't talk about that but I did this really novel campaign to promote the book um, so I have two videos up there
0: one of which you were putting on red lipstick and I, was it the apple polisher that you were reading oh. when you put on the red lipstick? Pluck, Pluck. Pluck. yeah, yeah. So that, that was
1: fun I did all kinds of stuff like read to a fireman that I just stopped on the
0: street who doesn't want to do that? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a good sport. <laughs> well, you're brave. So everyone, please go buy Katie's book. Go on the Bamboo Dart Press website, Bamboo Dart Press, B-A-M-B-O-O-D-A-R-T Press, and uh, look up Novel, the chapbook by Katie Porter. You can also get it on uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and all those places. But yeah. try to support your small presses and check out Katie Porter's website, and I will put the information for her book party Please RSVP if you plan on coming, yep. and we will see you later. All right. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. It's been Good a joy. Time. I know you so well that it, it's so easy to interview you. And you, like I said, you are such like a wealth of knowledge on these publishing, writing issues. And uh, I hope to take a class with you one day. All right. I will. I will keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks for watching, and tune in next month, August 10th for Nancy Laird Young. And then on August 24th, Renia Grande is coming on my uh, podcast. She's a very well-known writer that just came out with a new book. And uh, you got to see that one. I can't believe she's coming on. So thank you. So see y'all later. Bye, everyone. Bye.